History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another History of Persia interview episode. I know we sort of just did one of these, but I think the best place for this is before I get into the real huge battles of the Greek Wars. This time, I talked with Dr. Sean Manning, author of the recently released book Armed Force in the Taisbid Achaemenid Empire, Past Approaches, Future Prospects. As you might have guessed from the title, this is a phenomenal achievement of academic synthesis and the first real academic book on Achaemenid warfare in a generation. It has already been an important resource in the last few episodes and will only be more important for the next two. As always, all of the relevant links will be in the episode description, including a couple of articles Dr. Manning recommended specifically for listeners of this podcast. Enjoy the interview. First, I think uh, if you could just introduce yourself to me and my audience with a little background of you and your research and maybe touch on the book and the blog a little bit. Okay. Well, I'm Dr. Sean Manning. I completed a PhD on armed force in the Tasman and the Kaimanid Empire at the end of 2018. And... Um, I run a blog, bookandsword.com, and I've been trying to, the way we think about warfare in the, in the Cayman Empire up to the level that we use, we think about warfare in the Roman Empire, warfare in the classical, classical Greece, because 
this has to be something that's been a lot of uh, serious academic research on. Excellent. Um, and that ties really directly into the first question I sent to you. Um, yes. What kind of obstacles did you face when researching the Achaemenid Persian military apparatus? Well, in ancient history, there's kind of a paradox where often there's a huge mass of modern research going back into the 19th century or earlier that we have to uh, that you have to sort through and show that you're familiar with. But and that's certainly a lot of work. But also with this topic, like I said, there's just the issue that there hasn't been a, a lot of research, especially not a lot of syntheses. So there are journal articles and chapters here and there, and a few a few short books. Uh, the one by Duncan Head from 1992 is especially good, but there's not really much, especially nothing but chapter 1992 that really organizes all this research so that uh, it's easier to digest. And probably that's linked in, into some things that happened in the 1980s and 1990s. If you think back, back in the 1980s, there wasn't a whole lot of research on early Greek warfare. Um, there were uh, a few books by people like John Kinlock Anderson, some of the wargaming-inspired research in the UK, like John Worry's book. But this wasn't really a very active field of research. And neither was studying ancient Persian, Persia or the Achaemenid Empire. Uh, these, this was also something that people did as a sideline to whatever teaching and research they did. That's the main job. People write an article, or an article or two, or a, a popular book now and then. It wasn't really uh, something people devoted their research time to. And in the night, at the end of the in the nineteen eighties, two things happened. First, a Dutch scholar called Helene Sensisky Weirdenberg had a feeling that the way we were thinking about ancient Persia wasn't really adequate. And so she organized a series of little conferences, mostly in the Netherlands and Belgium. I think there was one in the United States and one in uh, London. Uh, these became known as the Achaemenid History Workshops. They were usually a couple of dozen scholars who all wrote a paper and then read them in advance and talked them over. And while any, if you get 12 scholars in the room, they're always going to disagree about many things. The dominant view that came out of these workshops was that Previous research was two-faced, too focused on Greek and Latin written sources, uh, too influenced by ancient and modern ideologies about the empire, uh, and didn't rely enough on uh, indigenous sources, on archaeology, on art, and uh, on thinking, thinking carefully enough about how we interpret the sources. And... So today we can speak about Achaemenid studies as a discipline. It's not really something their department's in, but there are research professors that uh, would say that that's their specialty. There's uh, books like Emily Kurtz's uh, Giant Source book that you probably know about. Um, but in the 1980s, there was nothing like that. And uh, without these workshops, uh, that probably wouldn't have happened. Now, the other thing that happened in the 1980s was, I said, early Greek warfare wasn't a very popular subject for research. And then Victor Davis Hanson came out with The Western Way of War. And this book, which probably many of the listeners will be familiar with, took John Keegan's idea of the face of battle, focusing on what actually happened to ordinary soldiers in battle, what they experienced, what they felt, why they fought, 
as opposed to earlier research results from an officer's perspective or even the general's perspective. How do you line up your troops? How do you drill them? Uh, who made which general made good decisions and bad decisions? And this was this could be kind of a cold approach, but a lot of the people doing research were uh, current or former officers themselves. So John Kinnock Anderson, for example, uh, served in the army during World War II. And not only that, he wrote uh, in an engaging way. He wrote, his book was for an affordable price. And this sort of exploded because suddenly uh, there was an engaging uh, book on early Greek warfare. And most of what it said at first seemed pretty uncontroversial. But it also had an argument that it was, it was uh, not just interesting to study early Greek warfare, but this was important because uh, this was an essential part of ancient Greek culture and that the United States was an was a heir to ancient Greek culture. So for Americans to understand themselves, they would have to understand the Greeks and understand the Greeks, they had to study understand early Greek warfare. So uh, around 1990, with the end of the Cold War, uh, that sort of happy time for the United States in the 1990s, that, that approach really exploded, especially with the public. And now, the trouble is, of course, that this approach, Hanson's approach, was pretty hard to reconcile with the one that became the history workshops were putting out. Um, if Hanson says we need to focus harder and harder on Greek and Latin uh, resources, maybe a little bit of Greek art, Maybe a, bit, a little bit of Greek archaeology, but he, those weren't his real focuses. Uh, that we need to study it to understand the good values it's teaching. And if the Achaemenid history workshops, at least most influential people there, are saying we need to focus on Near Eastern sources, we need to ask about the ideologies we're using to interpret them, we have to consider that the Greek, Greek sources could be biased, they could be ignorant. And also, it should be said, the Achaemenid history workshops felt that the empire had often been seen in a rather uh, negative and derogatory light. Uh, it's a sort of uh, model, model tyranny. Uh, there's a lot of influence from uh, thinking about later Ottoman Empire. So from their point of view, it was, it was a good thing to focus on ideas like ideology, kingship, artwork, uh, all these other things mechanics of the empire and not to talk too much about warfare and violence uh, because that might bring you back to these Greek written sources of these ideas about despotic empires. So what that meant was that uh, in the 1990s and the 2000s uh, there was this uh, explosion, this flourishing of research on early Greek warfare and this, and this uh, blossoming of research in ancient Persia, but that these two kinds of research didn't really touch on each other very much. It was too hard to bring them together. All right. Um, and that kind of also answers the question I was going to follow up with, which is why there is so little scholarship and even popular writing on this topic, kind of limited to Duncan Head's book and Nicholas Acuna's books in English. Yeah. Well, I guess the other thing to say there is that Around 1992 was kind of when the Achaemenid History Workshops approach was taking shape. After that, it was becoming harder and harder to build on some of the existing research. Uh, and it was so it, it was just more work to write a book at, at that point. But 
I guess the other issue is, of course, near Eastern research is divided into different fields. It's hard for any one person to master them all. So, for example, uh, a lot of archaeology in Iran is published in French or Russian, and it's by archaeologists. If you're more of a text-based scholar or if you're an English speaker, that's not always so accessible. And the perspective archaeologists have is often a bit different from the perspective of text-based scholars. There's also been a lot of research into late Babylonians uh, up, up to the, about the second year of Xerxes. And that's also a, a big research field with uh, its own specialties. It's hard to get into if you can't read Akkadian. Um, and so trying to draw these different threads together after 19, about 1992 has become a really uh, difficult thing to do. Right. Um, and that kind of ties into the next question I wanted to get into, really starting to get into a discussion of the Persian army yourself. You spend a lot of time in your book comparing the Persian army to Mesopotamian armies from previous eras. There's a whole chapter yes. about it. Um, what influences did the Persians, especially the early Persians, take from Babylon and Assyria? And kind of related to that, what did they innovate? Okay, those are some good questions. Well, a lot of early research sort of sets up this opposition between uh, the Achaemenids as Iranians, as Indo-Europeans, as Zoroastrians, and this being different from uh, people like the Babylonians or the Elamites. And at the same time, we should remember that, for example, for about 100 years, a good part of Western Iran was an Assyrian province. Um, they conquered it pretty well. They 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 conquered it. They taken it over. Uh, they were getting horses and and other resources from there. Um, and so when the, when the Medes appear and become independent, they're probably drawing on some of these earlier Assyrian traditions or choosing to reject some of them. And also uh, in Elam. When we talk about Elam, we often think of the lowland part of uh, the lowland area, uh, Khuzestan in southwestern Iran, the area that uh, Saddam Hussein tried to take back in the 1980s, uh, the area was Susa. But Elam always seems to have been uh, this lowland area, this flat area, with, which is good for growing uh, crops, and the mountains above it. Um, so there's always this connection between the, the mountains of Western Iran and the lowlands of Khuzestan around Susa. And, and Gabe, we know that because of the archive for Persepolis, we know that people were keeping uh, records in Elamite at Persepolis, not in the uh, old Persian. They were using, there were some texts in different languages, but there's a whole bureaucracy that's trained to use uh, Elamite. And... Um, we also know Darius put a lot of work into rebuilding Susa. There's a famous palace there. Uh, everyone knows the famous building inscription about how he brought, he brought materials and workers from all over the world to build a really great palace. And so it seems like when, when first Cyrus and Cambyses and then Darius and his successors are setting up this empire, they're drawing on these uh, traditions from Elab. Um, and Babylonia too. Um, because when the Assyrian Empire fell apart in the 7th century, it was Babylonia that ended up with the biggest chunk. Uh, of course, Western Iran became independent under the Medes, who 
don't seem to have had much of a much much of a kingdom. Maybe they're more like a confederation. But uh, Babylonia controlled a lot of the territory from southern Mesopotamia down towards uh, down towards uh, Judea and Gaza. And it seems likely that when these new kings are setting up the system, they're building on this existing uh, Babylonian infrastructure. Because, for example, there's a bunch at Elephantine on the Upper Nile. There's this famous uh, island with a garrison on it of Judeans and Arameans. And we know that some, as around 400 BC, some of their officers still had Babylonian names. Uh, beautiful, beautiful Akkadian names, uh, even though they're written in the Aramaic documents. And presumably these are descended from people who were working in the Neo-Babylonian Empire and who uh, managed to switch uh, to work for the new regime. And in the 7th century, we also see uh, soldiers in Babylonia who were carrying a bow and a spear, which is the kind of armor that we see at Persepolis and we see in Herodotus' description of the Persian army. So it seems that what we think about as this typical Persian soldier with a bow and a spear is the way of fighting that was common in Elam and Babylonia around the 7th century. Maybe chariots are another good example because um, we know that the, the Persian army had chariots. The writers after Herodotus like to talk about the scythe ones, but um, from documents of Babylonia we can see that they were still a uh, part of the army. And there's also one in the fame, in the this tomb painting from Tatterley uh, from around the time of Xerxes invasion of Greece, it's early 5th century BC. This is famous battle scene painted on the inside of a tomb, on the wooden walls of a tomb. Uh, and the Persian army has some archers on foot, it has some uh, archers on horseback, it has a champion stabbing the wicked Scythian with his dagger, and there's a chariot with an archer on it who's shooting at the Scythians. Um, and Again, war chariots are a, were a strong Mesopotamian tradition. It something works quite well if you, if you have a, a, a kingdom and a bureaucracy to organize building all these chariots, to organize building, breeding the horses, training the horses, feeding the horses in winter, repairing the chariots when they get broken. And I don't think we hear very much about them in Iran in the Assyrian sources. So. Yeah, so the chariots might be another uh, Mesopotamian influence. Right. Uh, one thing that I thought was very interesting when I was reading your book, um, and partially stems from the title, is you specify with the title the Tespid and Achaemenid Empire and devote a chunk of one chapter to comparing the ideological differences between Tespid and Achaemenid. Now, my audience yeah. is... Uh, more or less familiar with the differentiation between Tasbid prior to Darius and Achaemenid after Darius. Um, yes. But this was one of the first things I've seen where someone drew a distinct ideological line between the two. Uh, could you explain a little bit of that for us? Okay. Well, I think it's useful to draw the distinction because we don't really know very much about Cyrus, Cambyses, or the king who Darius killed. And most of what we know is from foreigners. It's from uh, Babylonian chroniclers. It's from uh, Egyptians who left tomb inscriptions talking about how Cambyses conquered Egypt. It's not from uh, it's not from Iranians or the kings themselves. Um, and we often we talk 
since the 1980s, there's been a lot of talk about Persian ideology, about the ideology and these inscriptions from Darius onwards at Beistun, at, uh, at these other famous sites. Um, but we don't know if the kings before him talked about kingship in the same way. We don't have contemporary sources to show it. For example, we don't even know for sure whether Cyrus is an Iranian name or an Elamite name. There's cases either way, and different scholars will tell you that one theory is best. Um, I'm not a specialist in Elamite or Old Persian, but, I can, but uh, I'll just say that it's uh, disputed and controversial. And so I think it's worth keeping the distinction in mind, just because we don't know as much as we want about, uh, about Cyrus, about Cambyses, about the king who Darius killed. Uh, we should be careful not to just assume that the things in these famous royal inscriptions were valid earlier. And that to be said, different types, you could have also have other perspectives. So the people working on late Babylonia will say that things, that the time that things seem to change dramatically is the second year of Xerxes, where the whole mass of archives gets put away and uh, not touched afterwards. And that's probably connected to revolts against Xerxes uh, which ended up in a lot of the families who've been doing well under the native kings and under uh, Cyrus and Cambyses and Darius. Probably all these families, um, probably all these families got turfed out of their office. They'd been involved in the revolt or suspected of being involved in the revolt. They lost their property. And that seems to be the point where things in Babylonia really changed drastically. So less uh, directly changing with Darius instituting a new royal family and more uh, with Xerxes changing the Babylonian establishment. Yes, yes. Oh. So if you're, from a, if, you're, if you're looking at it from a Babylonian perspective, you might say the big thing is, is the second year of Xerxes. He did something in Babylonia and the change from the change from Cambyses to Darius is not such a big deal in Babylonia. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors. And Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. 
Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Getting into uh, the kind of popular gritty details that I'm sure some of the people in my audience are interested in, uh, could you talk a little bit about how was the Persian army equipped in terms of arms and armor? Uh, I imagine it wasn't quite as diverse in practice as Herodotus suggests with this catalog of nations, uh, but was it uniform or was there some degree of diversity? Well, always have to geek out. And uh, this is one of the things where documents from Babylonia can really help us because um, major landowners in Babylonia, including the temples, had to provide soldiers for the king. And uh, the temples had a lot of dependents working for them who probably weren't fully free. There's different theories about where they come from. Uh, Some of them are probably people deported from conquered lands or after rebellions. Uh, some are probably left over from the Babylonian Empire and uh, things like the uh, things like the revolts in Judea that ended up in the many people from there being deported to Babylonia. Um, but because the temples were equipping these dependents, they kept records of how much equipment they had handed out to whom on what date, or how much money they'd handed out for equipment. And so we can see in the, quite a lot of detail what people were getting. And it seems that if you were a basic soldier, you would get a tunic, you would get something called a mountain cloak, maybe it's even uh, one of those, uh, the flowing robes that we see people wearing in the sculptures at Persepolis. We don't really know what these look like. Uh, Usually a pair of shoes, some kind of miscellaneous things like water skins, Maybe each four, got, four soldiers or ten soldiers gets a donkey to carry all their, all their supplies. Uh, and then for weapons, they have a sword or a dagger. It's kind of the same word in Babylonian. Uh, they get a spear. They get a bow and a quiver with usually 40 or 50 arrows. And they get a, they get a hood as well. Um, So, so far, that sounds a lot like uh, what we see at Persepolis and at Tatterley and what Rodvis describes. Um, There are some differences, though. The texts from Babylonia don't seem to mention shields, although it's possible that, say, when they mention a skin, that could be a water skin or it could be a hide shield. Or it could be that soldiers just made shields themselves because if you have reeds grow everywhere in southern Mesopotamia and uh, maybe a, 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 a goat skin isn't all that expensive, you cut slits in it, you stick the reeds through it or branches and you have a, a wicker shield. But the interesting thing is still we could see these groups of up to 50 men all getting the same equipment from the same supplier. It was often being made by... Uh, workshops commissioned by the temples 
And there's nothing like that in early Greece because soldiers mostly equipped themselves. Uh, maybe if you were at Tyrannos in early Greece, you had you equipped your your bodyguards, the guys you had around to to break some heads if there's trouble in town. Uh, but if you look to the average Greek army, everybody is equipping themselves or equipping their neighbors. So uh, things must have been pretty diverse. We can also see that, for example, uh, some soldiers were getting uh, Akkadian bows, which are probably the, the kind of C-shaped ones that we see in Assyrian sculpture. And some are getting Cimmerian bows, which are probably the B-shaped uh, Scythian bows. They had different kinds, of different kinds of arrows to go along with them. From the archaeology, we can also see that probably there are different kinds of uh, spears or daggers in use. Um, uh, some spears had those famous uh, balls on the on the butt end, uh, like the ones that Rod just calls pomegranates or apples. Um, I think a couple of those we found at uh, Persepolis. Uh, different kinds of daggers as well. Um, so you maybe not everything's uniform, but there's still a agreement at least about what kinds of equipment everybody should have. Also, we don't hear so much about uh, body armor or helmets. Um, that could be because most of these documents are for very humble people who are being equipped by the temple. Uh, if you equip yourself, uh, you don't, that doesn't produce uh, records written, written down on clay. So, and it's, so it seems likely the temple is giving these soldiers the bare minimum of equipment and that if you're a wealthy landowner who gets called up in the army, you may have a helmet or some scale armor or uh, a big sword or, or a nicer shield or things like that. There's also the, for cavalry, the most famous source is this contract dealing with a soldier called Gadaliama. He's probably descended from a, a Judean family near Nippur. And um, he held what was called a horse estate. So in Babylonia, people were given pieces of land. And depending, and if it was, uh, if it was a small one, it was a bow estate. And the owner of that land had to provide an archer for the king when demanded. Uh, if it was a big piece, it was a horse estate, and the, whoever had that land had to provide a horseman for the king on demand. And if it was a really big estate, it was a chariot estate, and whoever owned that had to uh, provide a chariot for the king. And in practice, we could see these could be shared amongst different families or among several men, so they could share the military service. And at one point, under uh, Darius II, uh, Gadalgama was talking with his fellow holders, and they agreed that this year he would be in the army, but uh, the other people had to provide his equipment. This gives this very detailed list of equipment. He has a helmet, he ha an iron helmet, he has iron body armor, he has two lances, he has a bow, he has a horse, of course. Uh, actually, he does not have a bow. Uh, he has a bunch, he has 120 arrows, though. Um, he has some kind of weapon called a, a depu or a tepu, that seems to be a word that can mean the sword the weavers use to beat the uh, weft threads together. So in English, it often gets called uh, uh, a sword or a sword beater. So it's probably some kind of sword or mace or something like that. Um, you can see how much money he, he had for buying supplies. And we can compare that to, for example, some of the uh, funerary monuments from uh, 
West Anatolia, what's now Turkey, places like Tatterly. There's a few other uh, sites where people had paintings or carvings in their tomb, and a lot of the or on their sarcophagus. And often these show uh, people fighting a horseback because the kind of, that was how the kind of people had money for uh, a big fancy sarcophagus uh, fought. And again, we we could also looking at some of the evidence from Anatolia, we can see that some things are different. People in Anatolia seem to like um, they use bigger swords. They often use uh, curved swords bent forward that we don't see anywhere east of the Euphrates River. Um, in places like Bactria, in places like Bactria and Sogdia in the northeast of the empire, we can see lots of arms and armor which are kind of Scythian style. They have the actions with narrow heads for smashing skulls, they have uh, these little three-bladed arrowheads, uh, we have this Scythian-style bows and little bow cases you wear on your hip with bronze and copper uh, attachments. So, because it's such a big empire, there's difference in different regions. But we can also see that uh, an army raised in, say, Babylonia or in Bactria would probably look fairly uniform. So, um, my podcast is in the middle of the greek wars right now i'm going to okay. post an episode about salome today uh so from what you're describing it sounds like the archaeological finds kind of show regional variations within that region and then not those same tools don't appear elsewhere so would a large number of these scythian weapons and people have been taken to greece alongside maybe the people from anatolia and babylon or were armies generally raised in the locality where they were going to fight? That's another good question. From Babylonia, we can see that troops were being sent, for example, all the way to Egypt. Uh, there's a, quite a few documents that talk about soldiers being sent to uh, Egypt, sometimes for three or four years. That's actually, actually one, of the, one of the other tablets. Four men who were going to Egypt, and they got clothing, and they got food, and they got uh, a donkey to carry their supplies. And uh, so clearly, these weren't just sort of uh, for local defense. But we can also see that, for example, people in Babylonia are using Scythian-style bows and arrows. They're wearing hoods. Uh, probably the ones we see carved at Persepolis. They use the same word for them as they use for the Scythian hoods with the little cheek flaps uh, and, and the part that hangs down over the back of the neck. And it's challenging because the empire is so big, there's different kinds of evidence in different places. For example, uh, in Anatolia, we have these beautiful tomb monuments, but in most of Iran uh, and Central Asia, there's not very much evidence for burials at all. I, I suspect what you would see is local traditions, but also being influenced by uh, these Mesopotamian and Scythian traditions, because we see uh, Scythian-style arrowheads everywhere in the Empire, 500 BC, and in uh, Greek archaeology as well. Now, in terms of raising an army, in terms of raising an army, Rodas has his famous catalog of nations, where he lists all the nations in the Empire, uh, describes their national weapons and national clothing, of course, when it gets into the battle scenes, it's mostly about Medes and Persians and Scythians and Indians. Uh, he doesn't talk. These guys sound like they're equipped pretty similarly with uh, uh, bows and arrows and spears and shields. I would say the kind of armament that he describes and attributes to 
the Elamites and the Persians and the Medes, the bow and the arrow and the dagger and the sometimes body armor and the wicker shields is pretty close to what we see soldiers in Babylonia using. So it seems likely that that was how a big, a big part of the army that invaded Greece with Xerxes was equipped. And that was probably the most common way of fighting. But yeah, for the, for the rest, because we don't have indigenous sources for the invasion, uh, and because uh, our main source is Herodotus, there isn't very much contemporary evidence we can compare him to. We can compare Herodotus and Aeschylus in the Persei sometimes, but um, at, at some point you just have to say this is what, this is what Herodotus says. Um, you can interpret it different ways. My listeners will be eminently familiar with me saying, as Herodotus says over and over and over again at this point. Branching from that, something that several people have uh, requested that I ask about uh, is what were Persian tactics like? What um, mostly I've described working off of Nicholas Secunda because that was the first book I could get my hands on. The, yeah. uh, the Sparabara shield bearers protecting archers and kind of an expanded version of that old Assyrian style and using the big wicker shields to form walls. But is this accurate? Do we have evidence for other things? What was going on there? Okay, that's a great question. Like I said, that's the kind of thing that since 1980s people have really been uh, asking, whereas earlier researchers often felt it was good to talk about how many ranks is the army and how do they double their depth, and how they half their depth, and how do they uh, wheel, and uh, all these things that are interesting if you're a drill master, but uh, maybe not so, uh, maybe not so uh, exciting. I mean, the kind of famous examples of this kind of fighting are in Herodotus talking about uh, Plataea and talking about Mycale, uh, these two big battles. Um, and there, and then he talks about, yeah, the Persians, they, they set up their wall of shields, they start shooting, the Greeks charge them, they're fighting pretty well as long as there's the wall of shields, but once it breaks down, uh, the Greeks are... He says, unarmed, anaplos. I'd argue that's mostly talking about the shields because that seems to be the most important uh, thing to a uh, Greek in determining what kind of soldier you are. So if you're a peltest, if you have a, a pelte, a little round shield. Uh, you're, if you're a hoplite, you have a big shield and a spear and some other weapons. Uh, if, if you don't have any kind of shield, you're psylos or gymnates, so you're light or you're, you're, you're naked or lightly clad if you're gymnates. So we have these couple of famous examples. There's also uh, his battle against the Massagetai, which is in Herodotus is how Cyrus dies. There are other stories about that. But uh, in this battle, he says they start out by shooting arrows at each other, uh, and then when they ran at each other, they charged, they fought with spears and axes and daggers. Um, and that's kind of what we see at this w wall painting from uh, Tatterly, this painting on the inside of the tomb. There's the Scythians and the Persians are shooting at each other. They've got infantry, they've got cavalry, they've got... The Persians have a chariot because they're, uh, they've got a mighty king. They're not a bunch of uh, people who don't know, uh, know about Hermazda. Um 
but in the middle there's this clash between a Persian champion stabbing a Scythian uh, with his dagger. And of course, uh, at Thermopylae, for example, Herodotus uh, has the Persians uh, charging the Greeks, not the other way around. Uh, they don't just sit back and uh, shoot from a distance. And, I mean, if you think about it, soldiers kind of have to, have to adapt their way of fighting to the situation they find themselves in. Maybe, maybe you like to make a very methodical attack, but uh, you're in a hurry, so you have to charge now. Uh, maybe there's a fortress, and you have to uh, climb, up, climb up with ladders uh, if, you, if you're going to get into it. Um, I think we should allow for flexibility in different ways of fighting. Uh, and of course, uh, there were troops in the empire who uh, fought with uh, big spears and big shields. Uh, all of the major classical historians, from Herodotus to uh, Arian, either talk about Culper, Near Eastern troops hoplites, or they talk about them as being armed uh, like Greeks. So um, to a speaker of ancient Greek, Hoplites weren't just a Greek thing. They were anybody with a big shield and a big spear who fought, fought close together. And again, because of some of those things in the 1980s, the way that Victor Davis Hanson wanted research to be about Greeks and about Greek culture, not about, say, soldiers or infantry or uh, Magian or things like that, we often kind of forget that, that um, lots of cultures had, guys with, had men with big spears and big shields who fought and that um, maybe we should think about Greeks in the spotter context. And of course, the Greeks have the light-armed troops too. They have people throwing rocks and spears and shooting arrows. Uh, because these tend to be poorer people, they often don't get as much attention in the histories. And it does seem like in Greece, we have this sharp division between the guys with spears and big shields and the guys with uh the guys who throw things or shoot stones from slings or or shoot arrows from bows whereas in the near east often the same people have both sets of have both a spear and a bow but again uh if you have an army you at some point you need both people you can shoot at a distance and people can close in with the enemy um uh we're, we're very much in the early days of trying to figure out what happened on Near Eastern battlefields because we don't have sources like uh, Xenophon or Thucydides who go into the nitty-gritty of what happened when soldiers were fighting. Usually, if we, have, say, a if we have, say, a royal inscription, it's just telling you about what the king did and how he was very brave and how his enemies were cowards and weak and uh, ran away as soon as they uh, saw him. Now he slaughtered thousands of them. And if you have the chronicle, it's usually very... Uh, concise and just tells you where there was a battle and uh, who won and how many people were killed. But I don't have a problem with the ways of fighting that Rodness describes. Uh, they're kind of similar to some of the Near Eastern evidence. Uh, I think we just have to remember that uh, there were different approaches, that sometimes the Persians charged, charged straight in. Uh, sometimes they, sometimes they uh, just shot from a distance. Uh, Things like the people in northern Anatolia, who Xenophon fought when he was uh, marching back from uh, marching back from his from uh, after the death of Cyrus the Younger um, in 400. Um, these guys didn't have, didn't all have bows. They would have fought differently from uh, the kind of people, soldiers that Herodotus describes. Right. Could you also touch on 
uh, cavalry tactics, maybe. That always seems like something the Greeks overlook or ignore or somehow manage to avoid. But also they always comment on how present and important Persian cavalry was. Yes, especially Herodotus. So, I mean, uh, at uh, Marathon, Herodotus famously says the Persians thought the Greeks were bad because they were attacking and they didn't have any cavalry or any archers. Um, and Herod in Herodotus, Persian cavalry seemed to prefer to fight the distance. They uh, shoot arrows, they throw uh, spears, they atlatea, they... Uh, they're always dashing around the Greek army and trying to block the springs where they get water um, or trying to cut off supply convoys coming up the Greek army. And they don't usually show so much in the big battle scenes uh, when they're talking about the two lines coming together. But then um, he does talk about uh, Mardonius at uh, Plataea with his bodyguard of a thousand cavalry riding back and forth and reinforcing the line wherever it's, uh, wherever they're having trouble. And he does also say that Persian cavalry sometimes had helmets, whereas in Herodotus, Persian infantry don't. And of course, these, uh, a lot of these, uh, paintings and sculptures from Western Anatolia, we see, uh, cavalrymen, uh, uh, stabbing their opponents from horseback and, uh, charging in close quarters. I guess, looking back, we often think that we often sort of take cavalry for granted, but this is still the period when uh, when it seems like people are trying to figure are just figuring out how to how to have large groups of soldiers fighting together on horseback. It's really at around the eighth century BC that we start to see uh, really large forces of cavalry and starting to outnumber the the chariots uh, anywhere in kind of Western Eurasia. I can't. There's there's some archaeology in like Central Asia and the Eurasian steppes, but uh, that's not really an area of my expertise. And the Eurasian sources, it seems like it's around the it's around the eighth century BC that that big forces of cavalry start to appear. And so um, it does seem likely that the Persians in the game they had the Median tradition. They also had these Assyrian and Babylonian traditions of raising big cavalry force, it seems likely that they'd figured out some uh, some things that uh, people in Greece were still uh, learning about how to have an effective cavalry force. Um, I think we should also remember that again, just maybe maybe fortify the distance, but sometimes that's not the best option. Herodotus has, that, has a story about this revolt on the Cyprus, where uh, one of the Persian uh, commanders uh, uh, charges somebody else on horseback and uh, yeah, they're, they're fighting, there's two guys on foot one with, we had an assistant with a big sword and uh, one guy says I'm going to let, let his horse kick me, kick me, I'm to block it with my shield then you chop at the horse's legs while uh, they're out there and he does this, this works, but that's an example of, uh, around 500 BC of uh Cavalry charging right in, close enough to kicking distance, and to use, close enough to use their use their swords and spears. So, um, so again, we should remember that uh, it's a big empire, and there are different local traditions. And and while some cavalry, especially early on, may have preferred to fight from a distance, uh, that doesn't mean that was the only thing that they did. And kind of shifting away from Greece, maybe. Uh, okay. Do 
any of the less discussed Mesopotamian or for want of a better word, Eastern sources and archeology span reveal otherwise unknown military campaigns or conflicts, aside from things like the Behistun inscription, which obviously talk, talks about a very large war. Um, yes. Are there any things that have been elucidated that aren't mentioned in the classical sources? Okay, that's a good one. Good question. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, for example, Herodotus talks a bit about revolts in Babylonia. He has that famous story about uh, the city being besieged and uh, a Persian having to uh, pretend to switch sides to uh, get into the city. But we wouldn't have known that what happened uh, early in the reign of Xerxes was such a big deal without the sources of Babylonia. And from the sources of Babylonia, we can tell that there were probably uh, two different people trying to claim they were king of Babylonia at the same time. But they had different uh, regions, they had different uh, bases in different parts of the country. Um, that's not just about Babylon, because in Herodotus really likes to talk about Babylon. He doesn't know so much about the other cities. Also, Gadaliyama, who I mentioned, um, he's this contract he signed was one of a group of texts from the second year of uh, Darius II at the end of the 5th century BC um, that talk about uh, troops who having to go be assembled at Uruk to fight uh, somewhere. Um, we don't hear anything about this in the classical sources. It's possible that um, Photius, this... Uh, 10th century, I think, bishop, possibly, maybe he was even the Patriarch of Constantinople. Uh, he has a summary of Catesius. He talks about some wars after uh, Darius II became king. It's possible that one of these might have to do with uh, what we see, but uh, in Babylonia, something big was happening in the second year of Darius. There was an army that was called together at Uruk, and we don't know... Uh, um, where it fought after that. And also, uh, of course, the classical sources are very focused on the Aegean. Sometimes they talk about Egypt or a place like Sidon and Tyre or Cyprus, but they're really focused on uh, southern mainland Greece and what the Persians are doing there. And uh, in a lot of art, like these cylinder seals, for example, we see battles between uh, a Persian champion and a Scythian with the hood and the bow and the axe and the and the trousers and all these other uh, and the Central Asia styles of clothing. And a scholar in China named, uh, I believe, Xin Wu uh, wrote a long article talk, arguing that um, mate, that possibly these are kind of reflecting uh, traditions about wars in Central Asia with the Scythians and the Massagetai and peoples like that. Uh, that maybe if you walked around the marketplace and talked to people and you asked for some war stories, they would have told you all these tales about uh, wars in that area. Um, and that we just, uh, and that we don't have written evidence for this, but we do have uh, all these images of a Persian champion fighting a Scythian champion. Excellent. I, that does seem to be something that eludes the Achaemenid period for, in particular, because we know uh, the later Iranian empires were 
constantly embattled on the Eastern Front. Um, but yeah, I guess we just don't have the written sources to tell us about it uh, this yes. early. And there is a little bit of hope because of some documents that were found. Uh, they probably came uh, out of Afghanistan sometime in the past 30 years, but that's not certain. And these are a bunch of documents on either skins or on uh, sl slats of wood um, from the very end of the Achaemenid period and uh, early in the reign of, Al of Alexander the Great. Um, and a few of these letters talk about uh, soldiers. They're um, not about fighting or battles, but about uh, soldiers being called out to move, e either dealing with sand drifts or dealing with locusts. It's hard to tell from the Aramaic. Um, and this is not my area, but if there's been one cache of documents found like this, it seems like there might be others. Uh, hopefully... Some will be found with a uh, archaeological context because, again, these uh, these appeared on the art mark. We don't know where they're from, um, although it's likely that it's from uh, modern Afghanistan, or uh, also, for example, from uh, the south of the state of Israel. There's been a bunch of uh, potsherds and scraps of stones, ostraca, if you're being a uh, technical. Uh, with the uh, military records there, and it's also possible that maybe, um, maybe at, with further excavations, we'll find some kind of letter talking about, uh, say, Persian relations with the Arabs uh, or the wars against wars against Egypt in the fourth century BC when Egypt was independent. Uh, so far, it's mostly just administrative records and distribution supplies and things like that, but uh, you never know. Um, and just to wind things down, I like to ask a couple of fun questions to, at the end of sure. these. Uh, what is something in Persian research or historical research in general that you look forward to hearing more about? Ooh, that's, that's a great question. I might need to think about that for a minute. Fortunately, we can edit. Um... I'm looking forward to more contact between different kinds of research, between archaeologists and text-based scholars, between uh, text-based scholars and uh, art historians. Um, I think this kind of dialogue between specialists and different kinds of evidence in different areas can often really uh, get people thinking in different ways. Um, I also think there's a lot of exciting research that's... Uh, not currently available in English. It's been published in German or French or Russian or languages like that. Um, and I'm hoping that uh, in the future we can get more resources to have things like this uh, translated and summarized uh, so that sort of work into the way we understand ancient history. And I'm also like... Um, I, what I, I'm hoping that in the future, some of these fields of research, like late Babylonian studies, that have been a little bit uh, closed in and people writing for each other and um, not taking part in these bigger scholarly conversations or not being, uh, not having their perspective uh, included in some of these bigger conversations. Um, I, I'm hoping that, that this 
research will uh, become more widely known and more integrated into the way we think about ancient history. Because we really, there's an awful lot of evidence for Babylonia in the 6th century BC. Um, it's hard to interpret. Uh, um, the archaeology can be challenging because of the current situation in Syria and in Iraq. Um, I think there's a lot of stuff there that could be more wide, widely known that could maybe help us rethink about how we talk about something just like uh, early Greece or the Kingdom Empire. Great. Uh, and the last question, uh, do you have a favorite counterfactual or uh, just bit of trivia about Persian history? Okay, counterfactual or a bit of trivia. Um, well, I guess one thing I'll say is that if I could pick one ancient source that I wish we had, I wish I could have a, uh, I wish I could have a, a chatty Frank letter from the, from the time of Darius taking the throne talking about everything that's going on because uh, right now we have so many, we can speculate all that we want, but we have Darius's perspective on events. We have Herodotus's response to that. Uh, and we have uh, contemporary sources that uh, try not to talk about this much. Um, uh, again, a lot of the fighting he talks about is in Iran where we don't have a lot of written sources. Um, so if we just have uh, one chatty letter talking about what's happening and uh, what ordinary people should do about it, because it must have been great gossip, all, whatever was going on. And, uh, and uh, we can imagine that we can speculate, but uh, uh, without some kind of alternative contemporary source, it's just, we can just uh, speculate. Yes, you, you have to wonder what somebody thought when the third person in four years declared themselves to be Bardia, the son of Cyrus. Yeah, or I mean, uh, Darius becomes king while his father is alive. And uh, I guess because one thing is, often we have this idea about Near Eastern kings being uh, very powerful. They're part of dynasties and they're static and they're... There, there are a lot of cases where it seems like somebody became king through uh, some dirty bit, some funny business, or by murdering the other uh, claim that's the throne, uh, and cobbled together some kind of claim. Or, uh, I'm sure there would be uh, some wonderful stories if we just had more of the details. But once they're on the throne, uh, nobody wants to talk about uh, talk about who they had to kill to get on theirs. Well, thank you so much for uh, coming on to talk to me and my listeners about this today. Um, this is always a fascinating topic and the timing couldn't be better. We're right in the middle of the most famous war of them all. So this will work out perfectly. Uh, could you just reiterate to everyone uh, where they can find you online if you want or yeah, uh, something about your book? Okay. Um... The best place to find me on the internet is my blog, bookandsword.com. Uh, I'm working on, a, a, on a, a static site for some of the kind of more uh, transcriptions of sources and things like that. Um, that's kind of my hub on the internet, bookandsword.com. Um, the book came out from Franz Steiner Verlag in Germany uh, at the end of last year. 
um, armed force in the taste that it came to the empire, past approaches, future prospects. Uh, it's a fairly pricey book. I didn't have a lot of control over that. Um, it's at some point I'd like to write a more affordable version with some more illustrations. Um, probably after the academic reviews have come in because it's a broad book and I was pulling together uh, different fields of research. I'm sure there's stuff I overlooked or things that people from different backgrounds would see differently. Um, but that's a while out yet. And um, uh, I, should also, I should also say the libraries have a way of submitting a request to, uh, to buy a book. They won't always, they won't always do it. Everybody's got tight, mon tight money right now. But um, uh, if you want to read it um, uh, and you can't, can't afford it, that could be one way. Also, uh, the original dissertation uh, is open access. And there's a link to it on my website. Um, the book has a lot of little changes, but the dissertation still gives kind of the, the general impression. And again, uh, if, if you can't if you can't afford the book, uh, that's another option. And thanks for having me on. And then always happy to geek out about ancient Persia and ancient military history. Yes, uh, you're welcome. Uh, and I hope you have a very good afternoon today. Uh, you too, Trevor. Thank you. I hope you all enjoyed hearing about Dr. Manning's research as much as I did, and I really do encourage you to go check out bookandsword.com as well as Armed Force in the Tastebit Achaemenid Empire. He brought up a good point there at the end. A lot of the books I talk about on this show are drowning in the hellhole of academic publishing prices. But if you can convince your library to order a copy, that is one affordable way to access some really great resources. Links to the blog, the book, and the dissertation can all be found in the episode description. Until next time, if you want more information about this podcast, you can go to historyofpersiapodcast.com, where you will find things like my bibliography, the Royal Achaemenid Family Tree, and the support page where you can financially support this podcast. You can do that either through the one-time payment links all over the website or by going to patreon.com slash historyofpersia, where you can sign up for a monthly subscription that gives you access to things like ad-free listening and bonus episodes. Of course, you can also always support the podcast for free just by letting other people know about it. That is still the best way to help any podcast grow, so spread the word, share it on social media, where you can find me as History of Persia Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, and just at History of Persia on Twitter. You can also leave a review on your podcast app of choice, iTunes, Podchaser, all sorts have programs now, so give me some feedback. I always enjoy hearing from you. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line 
prop or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.